Hello and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Geraghty. This is our last episode of 2022. For the past 12 months, we have talked to CEOs, thought leaders, authors, engineers, journalists, and many more, all imparting nuggets of wisdom on everything from customer experience to the dawn of machine learning. As is tradition on the podcast, we have assembled an assortment of clips from some of this year's best conversations on the show. In January, Intercom co-founder Des Trainer and Chief Product Officer Paul Adams sat down to talk about speeding back up when momentum drops. One of the things we sat down to do at the very end of last year was plan out 2022, as would any organization that ships software, I'm sure. And I think an area we paid a lot of attention to was just like our own internal rate of productivity efficiency. And we kicked off a project to evaluate everything, every process, every step, every part of how software goes from idea through to like live production software that our users use and enjoy. We learned a lot. Paul, what did we exactly do and how could people learn from it? Yeah, I think what we did was uh, for us massively insightful, uh, more insightful maybe than, than we even realized going into it. Uh, it probably started um, maybe around October last year where myself and Dara, you know, I run a product team, Dara runs an engineering team. Uh, myself and Dara, I, I guess we're looking at how we work and we're hearing a lot of feedback bubbling up from some of our people and teams that we were getting slower. And uh, both Dara and I, ha- as you have, Des, like an obsession with moving fast and speed and efficiency. And so when you hear from, your, from some of your best people, you're moving slower than you used to. That's not good news. And, you know, we, we believe that if you become satisfied with how fast you're moving in terms of shipping high quality product customers, then you're entering the world of complacency and then you're uh, just going to kind of spiral downwards. So what we did is we surveyed some of our best people in, in, and other different managers and leaders and so on in the, in the product and engineering org, surveyed them and they gave us amazing feedback. And then we talked to them directly one-to-one to follow up and understand the nuances and the details, pulled all those things into themes uh, we did this very fast, by the way, like we did all this in a small number of weeks end to end, pulled it all into a small number of themes, understood where and how we could change, looked at our process, looked at our culture and made some really sharp, incisive changes to how we work. And it's been received really well. You know, people were just fully energized by the whole thing. And early days, you know, it was only last October that we started this and we're into the new year, but so far so good. Just um, to modulate one piece out, like the, the stuff we heard, like it wasn't like work from home, it wasn't pandemic, it was like, it was stuff that would have been true if everyone was in the same room, let alone same office, whatever, right? Yeah, and you have to be very open-minded, especially Dara and I as leaders and our direct team of leaders, like senior leaders, you know, some of this cut deep, like it hurt, it hurt to read it. Uh, knowing that we're kind of in charge and, and accountable for how, how the product and engineering team work at Intercom. So it was some of the things that, that, that you know, cut deep, like I said. So things like people being afraid to make some decisions, afraid to fail. You know, there's like a, an aversion to taking risks. And so people were doing things in a more safe way. And that was a, some cultural components to that. And that's not what we want at all, you know, or we have a culture here where it's highly collaborative. People tend to be very thoughtful of one another and empathetic and kind. And that can lead to kind of 
designed by committee at the worst times. You know, we need to, everyone, everyone's opinion needs to be included. And that's not necessarily what anyone wants. Other stuff where people were following our process kind of blindly. And so they were like reading, you know, reading the kind of principles we have and understanding, you know, what they are. And then kind of like a little bit of cargo culting. And some of our people mentioned cargo culting, you know, this idea that you follow the process blindly without really thinking critically about whether or not it's the best way to work or the fastest way to work and so on. And then things like road mapping took too, was taking too long, too much work, a bit of work work. So there's actually a desire for more top-down leadership. You know, so Intercom, we kind of operate with a very autonomous model of teams and groups of teams, but they were looking for a bit more direction from some leaders like myself and yourself on high-level strategy. Yeah, stuff like that. That, like... I mean, obviously, I read the reports as well. Um, for me, like the, the two thoughts occurred. Like w- one was, um, could we have noticed this earlier? Or like, like to some degree, like let's say um, some of these things, for example, like people blindly following the process, like culturally, nothing grows out of a vacuum. That was probably a reaction to like a project that went wrong and somebody came into the room like you or me and said something along the lines of, we didn't follow the process. That's why this didn't work out. Right. And like that got like translated into, if you don't follow the process, that'll be cited as the reason why the project didn't work or, or yeah. like why things didn't work well. Like has it made you more reflective? It certainly has for me. Has it made you more reflective on, on how, where, uh, why you engage in things such that we don't start new on ramps onto new problems in the future? Yeah, it, it definitely did. I think one thing it brought into sharp focus for us was we are a very principle-based company and we have principles in the product and engineering team. We have three principles and as an end result of this project, added a fourth. We have three principles and then below that we have process. And the process is basically a, a bunch of things to do to enact the principles. And principles by definition are guidelines like they're not rules, like principles are not rules. But I think just because of the way we evolved the company and we were growing fast, adding people, and the principles are quite strong, people like them a lot. That led to kind of assuming they were rules versus guidelines and people didn't want to skip steps in the process. And so I think as a result, we've managed to say to people, hey, it's the principles that matter, but yet they're guidelines, not rules. And hey, after that, it's outcomes, you know, we shipped a great product to a high quality, uh, efficiently, and its customers value it. It's been used, all all that good stuff. And the other thing that I was, I guess, I want to just say, like, proud of, like, I mean, one of our core beliefs, I think, is like, uh, and it's a, it's a national intercom wide sort of value, is that we are confident yet humble. I think th- this podcast might be an example of it. In that, like, on one hand, here we are saying, here's something you should all do. On the other hand, we're humble enough to say, here's a lot of absolute mistakes we made uh, that were clarified to us. The piece I was happy with was that we actually got the like, you know, the sharp end of the stick handed back to us from the team, which was really valuable. I think you have to have the right type of culture that lets people openly criticize a process or a person or a leadership style and say, hey, Paul, hey, Des, you need to take a stronger opinion here. You can't just leave that up to us. Or hey, this process that you've designed has turned into like a box checking like TPS report that no one, everyone does and no one understands or whatever. And I think it was definitely like bruising to hear pieces of this, but you'd much rather take those bruises than have everyone either afraid to say it or afraid to offer it or like uh, saying it to each other, but just not saying it to you. Yeah, yeah, very much so. 
Uh, one of the other things actually that was not, not necessarily surprising to me, but definitely a moment of like reflection was going into this, you know, we, we shipped 150 customer facing changes last year. It's not like, you know, productivity has ground to a halt and it's just decision making, you know, circular conversation after circular conversation. We're actually like good, I think. And, yeah. and by a lot of people's standards, very good. You know, 150 things in a calendar year is obviously something to be proud of. But we were hearing that from the, the teams, the people on the teams themselves, the people working directly on the projects, uh, who are obviously you know at the front line of, of building great software for, for our customers. And so people just saying, especially who've been here a long time, hey, we're just, things are creeping in as we scale. And so what was really good for me as well was when we replayed this back to the org, back to all our people and said, hey, here we've surveyed people, we've done interviews, here's what we've heard. And the message was, look, momentum is really important. Momentum builds momentum. And we are simply less efficient than we used to be. And we think we can improve here. People love, most for the most part, loved that. They were like, yes, more of this. This was like, oh, thank you. I don't, I shouldn't have all these meetings that I think aren't very useful anyway. I should skip all these steps that I thought I had to do. Like people loved that message. And so the, I think the, the two-way vulnerability and the transparency of thought. It's like, just, hey, here's what we've heard. Here's what we think. Here's what we think we should do on both sides, from our people, from us. I think that led to the, like a symbiotic, like positivity and better ways of working as a result. In January, we were joined by Intercom brand editor Neve O'Connor, who brought us a dissection of the term women in tech. The phrase has become a catch-all label, used to describe everything from the problem to the solution to the community. But Neve asked, what does it mean for the women working in Intercom? Here, she asks Intercom product manager Nadine Mansour. I personally don't like labels. And when I think of my professional life, I would like to think of myself as a product manager or a product person. And that's it. I don't want to add like any other variables or think of how my gender or background can affect it. And honestly, it just makes it simpler. And I think the question for me is, do I need to do anything differently if I'm a female product manager? And honestly, I don't think I should, or this is what I would like to believe. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you would kind of feel that the term women in tech would almost put you in a box a little bit? Yeah, exactly. And it's just simpler to reduce the number of variables that I need to think about. Like, I would like to focus on getting better at my job, becoming more impactful, connecting and learning from other product people, regardless of their gender, background or anything else. Like, I would like to isolate all the variables and focus on what really matters, which is that we're all technologists or like product people or whatever. So has Nadine seen any benefit from the women in tech movement? In some ways. Initially, it played like a very important role. And like, as I was saying in the beginning and promoting the idea of female working in the tech industry, that this is an option. It, it made it obvious for young girls that this is something that they can pursue. So I think it initially played a really important role, but I think it can quickly become overwhelming as well. And that's, I think, the balance that I'm, I'm trying to find, which is it was really useful in the beginning. I just, I'm just trying to make sure it's not pressuring as well. And that it's still like promoting for equality, which is like, I want to win an opportunity because I'm a skilled product manager, not because I'm a woman product manager, if that makes sense. But honestly, even like from my personal experience, what really affected me the most was my upbringing. 
because I had like two older sisters. Both of them are engineers. So it was pretty like normal for me growing up, seeing my two older sisters working as engineers. It felt normal. And also like my parents as well. I think like they were pushing us as much as possible to like pursue a successful career and professional life. And from my personal experience, like this had more impact than the idea of women in tech, if that makes sense. But I don't think this could be generalized. Like this is my personal experience. In April, we were joined by Global Vice President of Customer Success and Renewals at Oracle, Catherine Blackmore, who had this to say on the topic of allyship. It goes back to how I got started and kind of in a non-traditional career path into technology and even before, you know, I, I probably years, years later reflect back, I would say, you know, so many of my opportunities came through allyship and I probably didn't, we didn't know it at the time. I don't think there, we'd really talked about that at the time, but it really was, you know, and so when I think about even advice moving forward is, you know, I think I took for granted at the moment now, which I don't now, the individuals that really unlocked doors for me. And it wasn't just unlocking the doors, but motivating me, seeing who I was and knowing what I was able to accomplish and seeing the future maybe more bigger than what I even thought of myself at that time and really believing in me. To me, that's the definition of allyship and giving me access to power, to meetings, to assignments that helped me grow, helped me get exposure. You know, that really helped me advance my career in CPG. And then when I think about coming into technology, it was allyship that actually got me in the door you know, having the co-founder of Jigsaw see something bigger in me than I saw myself at the time would not, you know, he didn't allow me to apply to a, a job that he didn't think was designed for me. He designed a career around me. I, you know, that's amazing wow. to have a leader see something in you and design a role around you and say, you know, I think you can help us here and design that role. And I think finding leaders like that, you know, that, that will believe in you to help open up areas for you of new career growth, that's been central to my success. And so when I think about where I am now, you know, the legacy that I certainly now think about is how many people have I done that for? And how am I thinking about developing talent for the future? And it is a critical focus. You know, I, I really am challenging myself and my team to build a diverse team, to think about equity and an inclusive culture. And, you know, especially when we think about the profile and the makeup of our organization, we have to look like our customers. We have to look mm. like the rest of the organization, and that is the future. And so having strong programs that really push us to improve is central. And again, it's allyship that's going to be able to help individuals have access to build that that future of a diverse, equitable, and inclusive team. Also in April, we sat down to chat with HubSpot CEO Yamini Rangan on ditching the funnel for the flywheel. Our chief marketing officer at the time, Anna Griffin, began with this question. So, okay, so flywheel, it sounds beautiful. But for our listeners who are intrigued, to try to stand something like that up when you haven't built a company. Clearly, you can have a company that's focused and has values on being customer obsessed. But for anyone out there listening, how would we get started with a flywheel approach in our business? What's your advice? I love this question. I think it's a completely fair question. I mean, you can certainly go all in and create the art and the science behind it. I think the easiest and the simplest way to start is to get something like a customer council built. Now, I'm sure you do this, getting the marketing leaders, the sales leaders, the customer success leaders on a regular cadence talking about the customer. Because the first step to take in the journey 
Anna, is really to go from functional thinking to customer in thinking. We think about, we say this is like customer in rather than function out. And in order for you to take that step of thinking about everything from the lens of the customer, just have to create a customer council of some sort, bring the leaders across marketing, sales, customer success, look at metrics that customers will be impacted by, not the number of leads and the ACV and you know, CSAT, but really look at it of how many customers visited this particular website to add, add traffic. And therefore, now how many customers are actually engaging with our free product and how many customers are getting value out of the free product that therefore they look at upgrading. So really even think about the metrics from a customer perspective. And if you just did that without doing anything else, you would still move the needle because now you've broken down the siloed functional thinking that creeps into organizations organically and takes it to a place where it is much more about the customer. That's the first step. Yeah, I mean, how do you guys bring customer insight into the company in a way that people who aren't customer facing can really get, you know, customer insight and get voice of the customer? Tell me some of the things that HubSpot does to make that voice of the customer accessible and understood. Yes. And I think we could talk a lot about this. I'm sure we can exchange best practices there. I would say that the voice of the customer cannot be one and done. It just needs to be everywhere within the organization to really drive that type of customer thinking within the organization. So we certainly do have a voice of the customer program and team. And that team's accountability is to bring both quantitative data about customers and their experiences, as well as qualitative data about the customers and their experiences. And I emphasize both of this because when you just look at numbers, you could look at journey and you make journey analytics in a really part of your process, you still don't understand what's happening with that particular customer persona. And so while quantitative information is great, you really need to marry it with qualitative customer feedback. And so the voice of customer team really does a brilliant job of that. You know, I mentioned a little bit earlier about our customer first meeting. This is literally the first meeting of the month. Most of our leadership team, the top, you know, 40, 50 leaders are there. And they're listening to customers. You know, this is, we serve small, medium businesses. And even within that, we have sub-segments. And, you know, when you see a small, medium business person, they're like driving, they're multitasking. They have kid, you know, behind that they're helping with. You can see them in their natural space and you get how much of multitasking they need to do to run a small business. That's not going to come from any numbers. And that's exactly what, you know, the programs bring. So we do those types of voice of the customer. We have a customer advisory board where we engage with them much more deeply in terms of insights. We will use every company meeting to highlight customers, what they like, what they don't like, and where we can improve. And so there's this constant feedback loop across between customers and all of HubSpot that builds it into the DNA of the company. 
Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode 2 of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our Chief Product Officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience, it's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now, and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. We all want to believe we're working towards something meaningful and that our actions have a lasting impact. And while it's easy to believe that only certain people are positioned to drive that change, everyone has that power in them. That's what Elizabeth Dixon, author of The Power of Customer Experience, told us in June. Elizabeth shared this particular story, which illustrates that power we all have in CX. It was a Saturday and in our crew, we have a, my husband and I have a seven and an eight year old and the four of us do a lot together. But this particular Saturday, my um, husband and son were offered tickets to go to a college football game. And that left my daughter and I with a full day that we could do whatever we wanted to do. Well, I decided it would be a fantastic idea in a world where most of my shopping is done online. I thought I'm going to take her to the mall. Mm. And underlying that, I had an ulterior motive that I really needed to get a new pair of pants. And so I was like, you know what? Like, we'll have a good old time and I'm going to find those pants. Well, I am telling you, it was impossible on this particular day. And <laughs> he was catching on to my my little plan, my covert assignment <laughs> that I had to find these pants. So we end up going into... After we've been to a number of stores, we end up going into Nordstrom and I was just, she was just, both of us were just kind of, we, we were done. Right. And I don't know what it was if this beautiful woman just saw it on both of our faces, but she came over and is like, Hey, you know, how can I help you? And I just start to like, verbally vomit on her. Like, I, I mean, I'm just trying to find this pair of pants and I really wanted to have this special day with Ansley and oh my goodness. And I need the, and she was like, girl, I got you. And it's like, she created this little moment. She ushered us into the biggest dressing room. You know how dressing rooms will have like all the yeah. things, And then there's like the one that's a little bit larger and it had this mirror that, I mean, Ansley jumped up on what was like, felt like a little stage in front of this <laughs> mirror with three different mirrors to it. And she starts singing, let it go at the top <laughs> of her lungs, which was creating its own moment. And Linda, her name brings in all of these pairs of black pants. So many, I would have never picked out, but the one that she picked out ended up being the one that I bought. And she walked us through this whole process. But then what was crazy 
is I'm feeling like redemption has occurred because Ansley is, is singing and performing. I'm finding pants that I need. We're having a great time. And I go to check out and there was a cash register that was really close. But I was like, no, no, no. I want to find Linda. Like she has helped make this moment and this whole day for us. I need to find Linda. So yeah. I go across the department store and I find where she was at her cash register and I tell her, thank you so much. Like, I really love the pants. And we start talking about accessories and belts and, you know, what's in style. And she's totally helping me. And all of a sudden she pauses and she goes, oh my goodness, I am so sorry. And I kind of begin to freak out a little bit because I'm like, oh no, that's what you say when your customer's credit card gets declined. You know, there's some embarrassing thing on my side. And I'm thinking, no, I I know that I paid that. Like, I know this should be fine. And and she says it again. She goes, I am so sorry. And I say, well, what? And she says, I don't have any tissue paper, like the, you know, fluffy paper that they put in the bag to make it look Ah. fancy. And I was like, Thinking to myself, oh girl, I don't care about tissue paper. Like I have a smiling child. I have my new pants. Like all is right with the world in my book. And she goes, but but this is Nordstrom. And you could hear the pride in her voice of, of like, no, 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 Elizabeth. It do, it doesn't just mean that you would need it or even expect it. But like I'm Linda, who takes pride in my work. And a part of our signature is to put this Nordstrom tissue paper in the bag. And it really caught my attention because I thought, those are the incredible employees who are working for these great brands, who are bringing experiences to life that truly are impacting people. And what Linda did for me in that day of like catching me when we were fumbling into the store and ushering us into the larger dressing room because it happened to be available at that moment. And then all the way down to the littlest detail of wanting to have that signature tissue paper in the bag. I thought, wow, the power that we have as individuals is massive, but I don't know that we always recognize it. So Linda that day made a huge impact on our lives. And um, I think we all have the opportunity to do that for everyone in front of us. I love to like use the word power there that we all have the power to give this kind of customer experience and, and that it's a choice. Yes, it is a choice. And do we see it? Do we see that it's right in front of us or are we wrapped up in all the things that are going on in our day and in our minds and in our worlds that we miss it? But when when we don't miss it and we take advantage of it in the little and sometimes big ways as well, we get to make a positive difference on our world and on the people that are right in front of us. In the last few weeks, we spoke to ProfitWell founder Patrick Campbell on life after acquisition. Patrick's company was acquired by Paddle earlier this year. Patrick was really frank and open about the experience, which is refreshing as it's not something we often get to hear about. Here, Patrick talks about what it was like leading up to the decision to sell his company. You know, for those of you who know me, I you know, tend to be pretty analytical. So I, I went, even if it's qualitative, <laughs> uh, went out and I talked to, I think it was like 30, 32 people who had sold their companies, about half 
had said that they wouldn't have done it if they had a chance to do it again. All of them had some sort of upside. So, you know, it's a little bit hard and there's always probably some mm. regret. Like I've, I've even, to be honest, have a little regret. I, I don't regret the decision. I don't think I would make mm. a different decision. But like, you know, there's definitely things where I was like, hmm, yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't know I would lose this part or I didn't know that I would, you know, have to deal with this part. You know, there's just those things that yeah. happen because you can't have full visibility. The other half said, you know, of course I would have sold of the half that said they didn't want to sell or they wouldn't have sold if they did it again, half of that group, so about seven, eight people, they just kind of handed over the keys, like they just left. And that was wow. the hardest thing that they said because they thought it was fine. You know, they get this money in their bank account and everything, but it was like they lost all of their purpose. Because when you're a founder, and I'd argue if you're an executive or like a hard charging even person early in your career, Purpose is a really big thing for you. You might not think it, but it is because, you know, that's why you're choosing to do this versus, you know, you know, digging ditches or, you know, being, you know, an office worker of some sort, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think the the biggest thing that they said was like, make sure you kind of have that purpose. And that's what led us to choosing, you know, we had a couple of options and this is what led me to choose to go to paddle was because I wanted to keep going. I wanted to be a part of a team. I wanted to help grow something still, all of those things in this space. Uh, whereas other options, we kind of would just have like a very rest and best kind of a situation or, you know, almost giving the keys over. So, uh, and then the last thing, the dramatic note that I'll leave you on of those seven or eight, three of them, uh, because of, you know, I, I don't want to give causation here, but mm. likely because of some of that loss of purpose, three of them became drug addicts or alcoholics. They're all oh. safe now. They're all good now. But all three of them, you know, when I talked to them and, you know, they're past recovery or in recovery, I think that's a lifetime thing at this point. Mm. Basically, they they said like, yeah, it was it was really hard. Like I just didn't have that energy and I went and chased it in the wrong places. So yeah, it's 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 tough. Like it's it's the it's the things you don't think about. Everyone fixates on the money. Everyone fixates on you know, the focus and all other stuff. And it's like, yeah, at the end of the day, we're, you know, we're people and our teams are people and those dynamics are, are a lot harder to manage. Patrick Campbell ending our show today. Those were just a handful of the amazing chats we've had on the show this year. In fact, this year alone, we put out over 16 hours of conversation. There is so much knowledge and insight in there. So I urge you to go and just browse through our archives. You never know what you might find. Well, that's it for today and this year. From all of us at Intercom, we want to wish you a very happy 2023. And we'll see you right here on Inside Intercom in January. Thanks for listening. This is Inside Intercom. Inside Intercom.